morning, everyone. Uh, if you turn with me to passage on which today's teaching is based, it comes from Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> it's a long passage. You're going to have to walk with me on this, all right? Put on your reading glasses. The printing is small. <clears throat> all right, here we go. You ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and and gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening And there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. 
Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And this is God's word. We're beginning a new series uh, in Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, if you haven't noticed. And in a sense, Genesis gives us a framework. Genesis gives us a blueprint to understand, one, what's wrong with the world, and two, how God will redeem the world. And this blueprint, it begins with creation. And where, whenever you, know, you discuss biblical creation, there's lots of debate. There's lots of debate around the meaning of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 brings up lots of questions about evolution, the age of the earth. Is it a thousand years old only or thousands of years only? Or is it billions of years old, right? Did God really create the earth in six actual literal days? Or is it a figurative days? Is Genesis 1 history or is it poetry? Was it really written by Moses? There's lots of questions. Everyone's got lots of opinions about it. But one thing, you can't let, before we even go into this, you can't let your preconceptions, you can't let your biases about creation squeeze out everything that God is really saying here, everything that he intended to say here in this text. And you especially can't say, well, you know, this is, that was a primitive time when this passage was written. Now, we're in modern times, we know better. That's like the worst thing you can say. That's a trap. Because think about it. If your thinking was better than the ancients, then a thousand years from now, their thinking is going to overrule yours. And that's not even true. I mean, think about it. Genesis affirms what? The dignity of men and women the dignity of men and women, long before we understood that here even in this country. Genesis affirms all races that are created in the image of God. We're all created in the image of God. This was written thousands of years ago. And so the dignity of all men and all women across the board, you cannot let your biases, your cultural lens, color, in a sense, this passage. And in many ways, Genesis chapter 1 is more modern than today's thinking, right? Especially in today's thinking, our racially charged society. Even science, by the way, even science is now questioning the theory of evolution, its validity. At the highest scholarly levels, they're doing that. If you don't know, that's true. But that's not the point of Genesis chapter 1. That's really not the point. On one hand, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that isn't true. But on the other hand, even science, history in the Bible is limited. It's limited. It's not the purpose in the Bible. The Bible is very selective about what it tells you because uh, its purpose is to give you an understanding on faith, life, sin, salvation, redemption, healing, 
our relationship with Jesus, what it means to come before God, what it means to be reconciled with God, how to heal the world. All of that can be found in the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, it has all the marks of Hebrew poetry. All the marks of Hebrew poetry. It's got parallelism, repetition. You even see it in English when you read it here together. Genesis 2, you don't have that. In Genesis chapter 2, you have almost a recounting of the historical aspects of creation. And so, you know, if you look at this, the liberal view says, well, maybe, maybe chapter 1 is all poetry and chapter 2 is all history and you have two different authors and they just kind of brought them together at some point in time. Remember, the liberal view doesn't see the Bible as infallible, doesn't see the Bible as an inerrant word of God. And so uh, it doesn't see it as a true account. And so the liberal view is very irresponsible, very clumsy. Let me tell you something. In Exodus chapter 14, you have the account of God's people crossing the Red Sea. They escaped out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 15, you have Miriam singing about that rescue. It's poetic. In Judges chapter 4, you have a literal account. You have a literal account of a great battle. And the judges are involved. In Judges chapter 5, you have Deborah, who's the judge, Deborah singing about that account. And so in Exodus chapter 14 and 15, you have one author. No one questions that. No scholar questions that. In Judges chapter 4 and 5, you have one author. No one questions that. No scholar questions the authorship of that. Why would Genesis chapter 1 and 2, only here, why would it only have two authors? It's very possible. It's very possible Genesis 1 consists of poetic elements, every bit as much as historical elements, while Genesis chapter 2 has more historical elements. And so, and there's, there's no one master of understanding uh, Genesis chapter 1 better than that great scholar, theolo- theologian, Meredith Klein. And Meredith Klein, he shows us that God chose us not to tell us how the world was created. That's not the purpose of the book of Genesis, especially this passage. God did choose to tell us what God did and why he did it. And so we're going to look at two points today. One, we're going to look at a framework of creation. Two, we're going to look at the implications. I know it's very unpresbyterian of me uh, to have two points, right? We have two points, but the second one has many subpoints, all right? We have one, the framework, two, the implications, okay? Ready? Here we go, all right? The framework, first. You have three days, the first three days, days one, two, and three. God creates what? He's creating our realms. He's creating the kingdoms. Day one, verse three, let there be light. That's a kingdom. Verse four and five, there's day and night. Day two, verse six, let there be expanse, right, to separate the water, right? And so now it was so. Verse seven, it was so. Day three, verse nine, let dry ground appear, and it was so, right? Verse 10, it was called land, The kingdoms, the realms were created first. And then parallel to days one and three, you have days four through six, God creates the kings, the minor kings, the rulers over these kingdoms. That's what you see here, right? And so day four, it's parallel to the kingdom. Verse 14, it says, let there be lights to separate day and night, to serve as signs, to mark the seasons and the, and the days and the years. And let there be lights... In the sky, let them be lights in the sky to give light to the earth. And so verse 16, God creates two great lights and he creates the stars, 
right? Day two, God creates the expanse, the sky, right? Between, to separate the waters, he says. Those are the kingdoms. Day five, he creates what? The birds. He creates the sea creatures. They are the, the rulers over these realms, these kingdoms. You see that parallelism, right? Day three, he creates land. Day six, he creates the animals. And then in verse 26, he says, let's create man. Let's make man in our image. They are the rulers. They are the kings. And then he specifically looks at the men. He specifically looks at man, human beings, and he says, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to rule over everything. So man then gets established then as the king over all these kings, over all these kingdoms, and God then becomes the king over all these kings who are over all these kings, over all these kingdoms. God becomes the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You see that? That's what this is telling us. It's not teaching us about evolution. It's not teaching us about the age of the earth. What this is teaching us are good things about creation. That was the first point, the framework. You have to understand the framework. What does that teach us? What are the implications? And these are the important things we need to know. One, the priority of God. What's the message of the author here? In the beginning, God. Now remember, in ancient times, People worship the sun. They worship the moon. They worship the stars. They worship the storms. They worship the sea. They worship created things. But think about this. God created them. And how did he create them? With his word. God spoke. When I say, let there be light, one of you has to like look around and be like, oh, and then you got to go and you got to flick on a switch. You got to actually do the work. God, his word has creative power. God is so powerful. His word has creation power. And on one hand, God created these beings to act as kings. So there's a beauty about them. There's a grandness about them. That's why we look at the sun. We are in awe of the sun. You look at the Grand Canyon. You're in awe of the Grand Canyon. There's a beauty. There's a greatness about nature. There's even a greatness about human achievement. Because God created man, and he created man in his image, and he's a creator. And so when man is achieving and man is creating, there's a grandness about it. There's a beauty about it because we're all kings in a sense, but we're created. What does that mean? As great as they are, those lesser kings, as great as you may be, if God is not in the rightful place as the ultimate king of your life, if God is not priority, if God is not first, your life will spin out of orbit. That's what's going to happen. You've got to look at the hierarchy. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars, and everything is created, in a sense, in a higher order than the previous. Higher priority than the previous, in a sense. That's a hierarchy. And man is created last because he's created to rule over everything. Later in chapter 2, God brings the animals to Adam, and he's empowering Adam to name the animals. Because why? Because the very act of naming something is what? You're owning something when you name something. It's why we name our instruments. It's why we name our cars. It's why we name our pets. The companies that we form. These are created things that we have, things that we own. It's why we name our children. You understand that? God says in verse 26, let us make man in our own image. Verse 28, be fruitful. I want you to increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over everything, he says. What God is saying is, you, by nature, are vice kings. You are vice kings. God is saying, if I am first in your life, you will rule as a vice king very well. You will rule over everything well. You will rule over it with justice. 
you will rule over it with compassion. You will rule over it with righteousness. You will rule over it with love. You will rule over it in peace. But if God, if God is God in your life, if God is the source of all security and all wisdom and all power in your life, nothing else is going to control you. You are in your rightful place in a sense. What people say to bring you down or to bring down your rep, it's not going to ruin you. You see that? If people are disappointed in you, it won't ruin you. If you're single and you're just feeling just absolutely desperate and alone and lonely, that won't ruin you. If you're not promoted, if your career is sliding downward, that's not going to ruin you. If your children is not, are not as intelligent as you hoped, are not as athletic as you hoped compared to another person, right? Are not as popular as you hoped. If they're always sickly, if you don't have enough money in your life, that will never ruin you. They're all important. I get it. They're all important things in a sense, but they are lesser kings in your life. They are lesser priorities. But so if your relationship is not the most important thing in your life, and so God is not the source of your security, if God is not the source of your, uh, of your worth and your value, your significance, your power, something else is going to roll over you. You're going to be controlled by anything. You can be controlled by everything. That desire for intimacy, that desire for love, approval, your family, your children will walk all over you. Your salary will own you. You think you have a salary. Your salary actually has you. Your career will own you. You think you have a career. You think you're building your career. In reality, it's your career that's building you. You see? Everything goes upside down. And you're going to work, and you're going to work, and you're going to slave to maintain this thing because this thing is the source of your identity. And if you lose it, you will feel devastated. It will destroy you because you've lost it. You see that? You need the priority of God. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. Number two, it teaches us the broader meaning of redemption. Very important. Very quick. The ancients saw the physical world as a bad thing. They always saw the physical world as a bad thing, but the spiritual world as the end of all things. Western religions... Western thinking, Gnostic thinking, always say the physical world, the body is bad. The spiritual world is what's important. Eastern religions teach us that the physical world is not real. It's, it's, a, it's not real. It's bad. It's the spiritual world that's real. But what do you see here? In Genesis chapter 1, and you see the cadence. It almost reads like poetry, right? You see the cadence in Genesis 1. God forms the animals, and it was good. God forms man. It was, and after, he, after everything he's done, he looks back and he says, it was very good. He, God's in the dust. In chapter 2, you see him in the dust, and he's making things. And he brings it to Adam to give it a name. God is constantly, he's in the dust, he's in the dirt, he's making things, he's creating things. And at the end of every day, what does he say? Does he say, oh, it's just temporary? Oh, this isn't real? Is that what he says? This is bad? Oh, these things are just containers for our souls? No, that's not what he says. He says, it was good. One of the great lessons of Easter is what? Jesus rose from the dead. Does he come up as a ghost? Does he come up as a spirit? No. He has a body. He goes before the disciples. He starts eating food. He says, bring me some food, right? That's what he does. He starts eating food. He's made new. Easter, the meaning of Easter is what? Salvation not from your physical body into a spiritual body. That's not what Easter is. 
Easter, the meaning of Easter, the beauty of Easter is what? The renewal and the restoration, the hope of renewal and restoration of your body and your spirit. Genesis 1 shows that God is the king over both. He's going to renew and one day restore everything. Heaven will come out. In Revelation 21, heaven will come out. The new Jerusalem, the city of God will come out of heaven and come onto the earth. And the beauty and the glory of God will restore all things. That's very important. Why? That means that if you're sick all the time, one day, you will be completely restored. You're broken in some way emotionally, one day, you will be completely restored. You're broken psychologically. You've been hurt by a lot of people. If you have weaknesses, you just know that you're just, in some way you just feel lesser. One day, your true beauty and glory will shine through because the glory of God will assume it and work through all of that brokenness. And it's going to be through that brokenness you will have a new body and your spirit will be renewed. It's powerful. It's a much more holistic view, a broader view of redemption, a broader view of restoration. It's not just salvation in a spiritual way. And that has some implications because if you're constantly saying, oh, I need personal healing, I need help for my personal brokenness, I need help for my personal, you know, there's guilt in my life, there's shame in life, there's sin, but you have no regard for the physical brokenness of the city, for the justice system, for the educational system, for your community, you may view Jesus Christ as your savior, but do you view Jesus Christ as your creator? Do you view him as your king? A good king brings justice. A good king brings compassion. A good king brings order. There's a disconnect between the way you treat people at work and the way you treat people at church. You may be viewing Jesus Christ as your savior, but not as your king and certainly not as your creator. You see that? You get me? Similarly, on the other hand, if you believe that Christians should get behind social justice, Christians should be, should, be, uh, should be helping the city. I have a concern for the city, a love for the city. But you're never honest about your own sin. You're never honest about your personal specific need for the grace of God through Jesus in your life. And you don't surrender to God everything. You don't surrender to Jesus with your life, the things that matter most to you. Then maybe you see Jesus Christ as a creator of the universe, but do you see him as your creator? You get what I'm saying? Number three... This teaches us to rest from our work, constant work. In this passage, God makes everything. That's pretty much the sum of this long passage that we read. God made everything. Over and over, each, after each day, he says what? And it was good. He's a creator. He's an architect. He's a builder. God is a worker. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that as almost a song of creation. And so that means that God is an artist. For you artists out there, God is an artist. God is a, God is a singer. God is a poet. You see that? God is a farmer. God is a planner. And each and every time he does and creates something, he enjoys it. He says, it is good. That word, we call it the benediction. Benedict means what? The good word. We are created in the image of God. What does that mean? We're meant to work. Work existed before sin existed. Before sin came into the world, work existed. Work is not meant to be what it is, how you feel about it today. We are meant to work. 
You know, you know, a lot of people, they retire. And after they retire, they don't know what to do with themselves. And I'm not saying that to mock them. That's just reality. Why? Because we were created to work. We were created to do things. You see? We're, create, we're, we're created to create. We're made in God's image. We're created to build and to innovate. But we're also meant to enjoy these things that we do. That means that no matter what it is that you do, as long as it's underneath, under the kingdom, the realm of the Lord, what he's doing under his kingship, no matter what it is that you do, there is dignity in anything and everything that you do. It is good. That's what it means. I mean, I know. You sit in your office. You're half awake. You watch the Eagles game late tonight. You're half awake tomorrow morning. You, you wait for your slow laptop to load. Finally, you type in your username and password. You, you get in. It takes forever to load up Skype and, you know, and I'm for business and all this stuff. You get into Outlook, and all the stuff pops up. You open your Excel spreadsheet, and there you start your work. You're putting one number here, typing it into here, right? And you're doing some swivel chair work and, and you're sitting here thinking about it. Your mind's trying to think and how to, make the, how to present this and you're popping things. Then you cut and paste that stuff from your Excel spreadsheet and you move it into your PowerPoint. I know how it works, right? And then you're looking for like uh, other presentations that people have done so you can cut and paste that and move it in, take certain portions, adjust it a little bit. I know how that works, right? You're centering it all. You know, PowerPoint does that nowadays, does that stuff for you, right? Didn't do it when I was younger, right? Uh, so it took twice as long to make these presentations. I get it. I understand. It sounds boring. It's, it sounds droll. It's never as exciting as you make it out to sound when you're on a date. I know, right? But, uh, but God created you, and you get to create. There's dignity in just you doing it. Just you doing it. There's dignity in you doing it. You see that? You are called to exercise your gifts and your create curiosity. You are called to study. You are called to think. You are called to use that mind of yours. You are called to use your strengths. You are called to understand your world and how you are going to bring an impact into the world. You look what God does to the world. He creates. He fills. He's constantly empowering uh, others. He's ruling. That's That's how he rules. He's developing. That's what he's doing, and he's enjoying it. That means that the world was created for you to enjoy. A chef is known to make amazing dishes. You go to those restaurants and you enjoy it. And that honors God. You ever think about that? That actually honors God. Every time you take that and you go to that restaurant, you take that little sliver of that Chilean sea bass and you put that in your, I don't know why I use Chilean, I, I hate seafood, I don't know why I use that. You put that in your mouth and you go, mmm, Right? That honors God. The world was created for that. God saw what he had made. He saw that chef, what he's going to do with that fish. And it was good. That means as Christians, one, it's possible for you to enjoy what's been created, what you have on earth. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. Nothing wrong with having a good job. There are people in this room that, are, that feel guilty because they have money, right? Uh, there's nothing wrong. It's possible to enjoy what you have on earth. Two, it's possible to work on something and be truly human in a way that God designed us to enjoy it without finding your identity in it. 
You understand what I'm saying? It's possible to, it's truly human to work on something and in a way that God has designed you to enjoy that work without finding your identity in your work. That also includes not enjoying your work because of what that work says about you. You understand? But things can go wrong all the time. Yes, things can go wrong. But if God is your priority, you can trust the king. You can trust God who owns even these things, who orders these things, sustains everything that you've done. Anxiety is what? Anxiety is God may not be for my good. God may get it wrong, just like I just got it wrong. God's not going to write my career. God's not going to write my life. It's a sign that you're not trusting. You're thinking narrow. When God, look at what God is doing. He's showing you the whole picture. He wants you to live a much bigger life than that. You get that? It's a sign that you're not trusting the king. It's a sign that you think your kingdom is all that there is. It's a sign that you're not trusting in God. That's the only way that you can rest. If you truly trust in a God who created the universe, owns the universe, governs the universe, sustains the universe, if you truly believe in that kind of God, you can rest. Why do we struggle with our rest today? Why can't we smell the roses, so to speak? Why can't we enjoy creation? It's because you're trying to earn your way into the favor of others through your work. It's a way that you, a lot of us are using our work to gain approval. It starts very, very early to gain the approval of your parents. You need to get great grades. You need to get the good job so that they can tell other parents how good you are. You get that? Right? It starts there. Then that transfers into a significant other. That transfers into your children. It transfers to your boss. Transfers to your neighbors. That's why you got to have the best lawn. Right? Americans are obsessed with their lawns. Right? It's why we have to have the best children because if they fail, then I failed. It's why we have to, have, have, it's why we have to uh, earn the favor of our peers our spouses. Why? Because those things are what we really rely on as the true Lord of our lives. And because then our lives are spun out of orbit, now we're controlled by these things. And when you place your identity, when you place your faith in these things to save you, these things to give you a sense of worth, you're never going to find any rest because these masters will only demand more and more and more from you. Eventually, you will lose yourself. You're going to lose yourself. All that's left of you is your work. If you define yourself by your work, all that will be left of you is your work. A Christian at the end of the day, a Christian at the end of the week, is able to look at what he's done, finished or unfinished, success or failure, and say, it is good. It is good. Even if you fail, and I, and I get it, there are, there are micro-failures, they're a lot easier to address than the macro failures in our lives. But you can ultimately say, God is in it, and he is for my good. You can rest in him. You get that? The fourth thing that this teaches us is that there is love at the center of it all. There's love at the center. You look at verse 1. In the beginning, God. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. 
John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that has been made has been made. And so in the beginning, you have God, you have the Spirit of God, and you have Jesus, the Word. Right? You have all three. Our God is a triune God. Our God is a Trinitarian God. Three persons, equal power, equal dignity, one God, different roles. And they created the world together. They created the world together. What's that saying? One, God by nature is community. The very essence of God is a relationship. The very essence of his being is a relationship. It's why relationships are so powerful in our lives. We were created in his image. You were created to not be complete unless you have good friends around you, unless you have maybe a significant other in your life. You are created to be that way in a sense, right? God doesn't have relationships by nature. God is relationship by nature, right? That's one. Number two, what that means is God by nature then is other-centric, others-oriented. By nature, he's love. You see it all over the Bible, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit pointing to each other, magnifying each other, glorifying each other, one constantly glorifying the other, the other constantly glorifying each other. What does that mean? At the very essence of creation, at the very source of creation, there is relationship, there is love, there's putting one person's needs ahead of the other. We are made for that. You are made for that. Think about this. Right now, right now, if everybody committed to doing just that, no strings attached, there's the end of selfishness, there's the end of snobbishness, there's the end of aloneness, there's the end of loneliness, there's the end of arrogance, there's the end of malice, there's the end of gossip, there's the end of jealousy, there's the end of covetousness, there's the end of lying and stealing and murder and dishonoring. You get it? There's the end of sin. Love at the center thinking about others, considering others before yourself, giving, empowering, serving, forgiving. How will your marriage survive? You have to give. You have to empower. You have to serve. You have to forgive and seek forgiveness. The reason why Metro has survived, the reason why Metro has thrived today is because there's a good number of people in this room, leaders who have figured out that we are created to think for other people. If God is just one person, unipersonal, if it wasn't a triune God, then that means at the source of God was not love or relationships at the center, right? His kingship, his power, his sovereignty, and his rule would be at the center, then there would be no such thing as salvation because love was not at the center. But God so loved the world, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Love was at the center. To know that God knows you, that he delights in you, that at the source of that love and knowing and delight, he knew his son, and he delighted in his son. Jesus is being baptized. And as Jesus is being baptized, in Mark chapter 1, 
what do you see? The heavens opened up, and it says the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. You have all three persons of the Trinity right there. And God speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. God is doting on his son, magnifying his son, glorifying his son. The spirit descending on his son, magnifying his son, glorifying his son. The son saying, I'm going to send one after me. The counselor glorifying the spirit, magnifying the spirit. The father sends his son. The, the son says, all this I do. He's thankful to the father, loving his father, delighting in the father, knows his father. I and the father are one. You see that? Constant, constant submission and surrender to one another. You see that? It's beautiful. That's what's at the center. And that's got to be at the heart of our community groups. That's got to be at the heart of what we're teaching our children. I'm so thankful that our children's ministry, that the gospel is at the heart of what we're teaching our children. Because you can't just teach children, be good, right? They're not logical deducers. They're not inductively thinking. They don't piece these things together the way you piece it. You don't even piece those things together that way. We start at the source, and we work our way out, you see? That should be at the heart of all of our fellowships. It's at the center of our design. It's why it's so broken in our lives. Sin is just a distortion and a breaking of those things. At the center is love. Love at the center. Lastly, there is order in our lives. Order. What does that mean? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and there was darkness. In essence, there was chaos. It said that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Water in the Old Testament always represented chaos. Chaos. But even from the beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over it. And that word is a very maternal, fatherly type of word. That there was a love there, and yet there was a control there, like a father. Hovering over the water, there was control, there was kingship. Even there in that verse, in the first verse. In one of the Gospels, there's a storm, and the disciples are freaking out. And they turn to Jesus and say, Don't you care about us? There's a storm. Are you nuts? Do you care about us? And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's like taking a nap, right? And he wakes up and he goes, peace. And the storm quiets down. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus, his first miracle is what? He changes water into wine. Look at the order of creation. There's a magnificent order Darkness turns to light. Skies and the seas and the land, and then you have the rulers over it. There are kingdoms and there are kings. There is you. You are created. You, as a vice king, God is the ultimate king. You see the hierarchy? You see the order? If you are under God, what is this teaching us? If we are under the king, there is order in your life. You have darkness in your life? Is there chaos in your life? Every parent in this room is saying, yes, there's chaos in my life. The Spirit of God is hovering over that like a father, and he's in control. If you're trying to be a king on your own, there's going to be a chaos. There's going to be a darkness in your life. You see that? But if you come under the ultimate king, you become the king the way that you were designed to be. If you don't come under the king, your life is going to spin out of orbit, out of order. Your life is going to fall apart. You're going to become a slave to everything. 
You're going to lose yourself. You're going to explode, in a sense. You're going to implode and you're going to explode, essentially, right? Your work, your relationships, your families, they will all rule you. Come under the king, there will be light. There will be order. You become a proper king. In the book of Exodus, Moses comes before the Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. That's what he says. The Pharaoh says, no, right? What happens? The plagues come. One after another, there are 10 plagues. Moses begins, he takes a staff of judgment, and he strikes the Nile, and what happens? The plagues are really examples of natural order rolling back, a reversal of creation. What do I mean by that? Moses takes a staff, the Nile turns to blood, everything dies. Because everything dies, the second plague, the frogs come out. All the frogs come out because they're amphibians, right? They can come out, right? They start to plague the people, right? And then the frogs die. What happens? Then you got the gnats. Then you got the flies. Then you got the diseases. All the cattle get uh, diseases. Then all the people get boils. One thing after another is a logical step unto the next. That's what the plagues are. It's God's way of showing you that if you do not come under him as the ultimate king in your life, your life will spin backwards. There'll be a rolling back all the way until plague nine. What happens? There's darkness. Right back to Genesis chapter one. It's a rollback of creation. Every time you choose to sin, every time you choose to rebel against the king, what is happening? You're beginning that rollback. That corrosion is beginning. Hell is really just that corrosion coming to full bloom. That's all hell is. You choose that. None of us get sent there. We choose it. We choose to roll back until there's no turning back. One day there will be a no turning back. You get that? When God is not king in our lives, creation becomes decreated. It leads to chaos. It leads to death. It leads to darkness. It's a rolling back. Only God is uncreated. And so he reigns as king. He reigns as supreme. You got to trust his king. You got to trust this king. You got to trust his words. You got to trust his commands. You got to live into the design that you, that's been established for you. You go to a doctor, and a doctor checks your pulse, check, does blood tests, and he comes back and he says, Listen, I got to talk to you. You go to see your doctor. Your doctor says, Look, I don't know how to tell you this, but your blood pressure is off the charts. You've got serious hypertension. You've got your cholesterol level is off the charts. You are not living the way that you were designed to live. You got to stop the drinking. You got to stop the Krispy Kremes. All right? You've had like too many. You got to stop the Shake Shack. You got to stop that stuff. Don't make me laugh, all right? You got to stop because it's real. Right? I'm 45. It's real. And, and the thing is, when you stop, when you choose to say, well, who are you to tell me all this? Don't tell me what to do. What's going to happen? The corrosion will continue until one day there's no turning back. This is not an unnatural thing. This is a natural thing. It's the way you were designed. It's the way you were created. You get that, right? What do we do about it? Because most of us in this room are struggling to recover from brokenness in our lives. Most or all of us in this room have been betrayed at some point by somebody. We've suffered hurt in our families. We've suffered hurt from others. Most of us in this room struggle day to day in our jobs, right? You struggle in your families. You struggle with relationships. You struggle with your work. 
We struggle with rest, struggle with anxiety, we struggle with depression, and we're constantly trying to recover from it on our own. And this passage is teaching us to come under the kingship of God. Because when God brings something under his word, chaos comes to order. Darkness turns to light. It's our sin, it's our rebellion, it's our resistance to love God, to obey God that leads to the rollback, it leads to the corrosion. So what do you do? How do you address that? How do you fix that? On the cross, what do you see? Darkness comes over the land. Darkness. And the gospel according to Matthew says this, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then all of a sudden the earth quakes, the rocks split, the holy temple curtain tears in two. What's happening here? The world is starting to unravel around Jesus. The world is unraveling into darkness and disorder, and it's coming down all around Jesus. Moses, he brings the chaos with his staff. That staff, that very word, is used in the context always as God's judgment. And now here on the cross, that word, the cross, is virtually the same word in the New Testament, used in the same exact way, and now you see Moses brings the chaos, now the chaos is coming to Jesus. In the Exodus, the Nile River turns to blood. On the cross, you see Jesus' blood. In the Exodus, the last plague is what? After the darkness, it's the death of the firstborn. On the cross, you see the darkness, and you see the death of God's one and only Son. What's happening? Jesus is taking our place. And Jesus is experiencing the rollback. Jesus is experiencing the chaos and the disorder and the darkness and the death. Jesus Christ, the ultimate creator, is now receiving the corrosion and the curse of sin that we deserve and is now being decreated so that we are recreated. You get that? We can enter rest in Jesus because Jesus Christ on the cross, he's the one that's laboring and he's groaning and he's working, barely trying to breathe because on the cross you die of suffocation, asphyxiation. Jesus is becoming the slave. Friends, you can't earn your forgiveness from your sins, but you can receive it. It doesn't take any work to receive. And when you do, that's how you get recreated. Nicodemus is saying, how do, I don't get it. Jesus says, you need to be born again. That's what he's talking about. When Jesus is being baptized, we said the heavens opened up and God's doting on his son. This is my son whom I love. In other words, what is he saying? The good word. It is good. He is good. And that was the first time, by the way, since the book of Genesis, since Genesis 1, where God looked at man and he said, you are good. It's the first time since. Jesus Christ is the second Adam in that sense. Yet on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am experiencing the malediction. God has turned his face from me. God is saying he is not good. That is the malediction. That is the curse. Why? So that God can look at you and delight in you so that you can receive the benediction of God. Jesus didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he chose to. And if you read Isaiah 53, it says he was glad to. You get that? 
It's not like on the cross he was like, oh, this is so painful. That's not what he was doing. Jesus Christ on the cross, as he was suffering, he took every last drop of the wrath of God, was completely decreated. God himself, the Trinity was literally ripped apart. That the Trinity itself, in a sense, then decreated. And he was glad to do it to the end. Because love, his love for his people and his love for his father, to the end, the father turning his back on him, and yet his love for the father honored him to the end. Honored him to the end, loved you to the death. You get that? It's beautiful. That's the gospel. Because love is at the center, the father sent his son. Because love was at the center, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why are we trying so hard to get into the right neighborhoods, to get into the right schools, to get the right homes, to get the right careers, to get the right significant others in our lives, to have the right children? You know why? It's because deep inside, it's built in for us to get the good word. We're struggling. We want the good word. We want other people to say, there is a good mom. Now there is a good father. There is a good husband. There is a good son. That's what we're constantly craving the good word. We want peers to say, there's a person that I emulate. There's a person that I want to be. I want to be just like that person. I delight in this person. There is one beautiful person. We want that. We want somebody on the outside telling us we are okay. We are good. We're willing to do anything for that. We're willing to do anything. We demean ourselves, degrade ourselves, give our souls, give our bodies for that. And yet it never satisfies us. It's never enough because what you're really looking for is God's satisfaction in us. A cosmic satisfaction. That's how you find rest. To know that God totally and completely loves you. That is the outside looking at you and saying, you are okay. Then you can be satisfied. You can rest in Jesus. That's the gospel. To finally hear God say, in Christ, because of Christ, because of the cross, you are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am pleased. To the degree you trust that is the degree degree that you will finally have joy in your life. That's the restoration of peace in your life. Instead of trying to extort it out of other people. A lesser king. These are just lesser kings. When you look at each other, you're just looking at lesser kings. And you're, you're trying to extort love out of them, thinking that that is more important than God's love for you. Let God's love order your loves. That will put your career and your family and your materials, the way you spend your money, everything will be in the right place. You will be a good king. You get that? Come under the rule of the king. That's the message That's the gospel in Genesis chapter 1. It's all there. It's a blueprint. It's a blueprint for redemption in Christ. Creation, sin, fall, redemption, Jesus, gospel, glory. I want to welcome you to this series. Let's pray.